Well, my name is Nate Irwin. I'm the pastor of Global Outreach here at College Park, and it's my privilege to fill in for Pastor Mark while he's on vacation. Are you excited for tomorrow evening? Right about dark. McKinley, do you know what's going to be happening then? Looking forward to that? There's going to be some loud explosions in the sky. Now, we just returned recently from a trip to Pakistan, and in Pakistan, explosions mean something else. (laughs) But as Americans, tomorrow night, we're going to be delighting and rejoicing in the celestial exhibition, are we not? Why? Well, some of us just love explosions. (laughs) I mean, there's nothing much cooler than lighting things on fire and watching them go boom. And I'm sorry, ladies, that for some of us, it just never grows old. <laughs> but others of us who are more thoughtful will understand that behind the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in air are soldiers who fought in the Revolutionary War so that we might have an independent country. And you might think of others who have fought and died in the years since so that our land might stay free. And our hearts will swell with pride and gratitude and patriotism as we see through the night that our flag is still there. And as we see that star-spangled banner yet waving over the land of the free and the home of the brave, something might even happen inside of us where we want to be a little bit better Americans. See, remembering history can have a clear impact on us now because the past holds up a mirror to the present. We're in a series on the Psalms called A Song for Every Season. And last week, Mark took us through Psalm 83 about the apparent silences of God while the wicked freely strut about, about what it's like to be in the middle between redemption and consummation between the time that we're delivered from the tyranny of sin and have salvation in Jesus until the time that we enter the new heavens and the new earth. We're caught in this middle period of time and it's often very difficult for us. And in our pain and our confusion, we cry out, How long, O Lord? And while Psalm 83 is more about the wicked and God's eventual judgment of them, Psalm 78 is more about us and how the people of God are to live in the middle. It's hard in the middle. But it can be helpful to see how others have faced situations that parallel our own. And so our psalm today is a story. It's an historical retelling of many of the events of the people of Israel from the time they left Egypt until the time they entered their rest in the promised land. The focus is on how to live between our Red Sea and our Jordan River. It says at the beginning that it's a mascal, a teaching or instructional psalm written either by Asaph or one of his descendants. And it's long, as you probably noticed. But it's not boring because it has some of the greatest stories of the Old Testament in it. And so today is story time. We're going to be looking at Pictures of God's action in history. And if you're a guest today, I have some good news for you. Parables are not preachy. 
They're just there for you to learn lessons from. Look at verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Let me just quickly take you through a, an outline of the psalm as we begin to dive in. Because we're not going to get a chance to cover every verse. And I want you to see how the psalmist has put this together. Now remember, it's a poem. It's a song. It's not a, a history book. So he has selected certain things to mention and he's put them together in a particular order because he wants us to get certain lessons. And that's what we're going to try to dig out. There's an introduction. We need to listen up and then a conclusion. God's good plan. And right in the middle is a section of eight verses that kind of summarize what's going on on either side of that middle section. So there's eight verses of introduction, eight verses of conclusion, eight verses of summary in the middle. And then on either side of that middle summary are verses that describe events in Israel's history. First of all, when they turned back, and then when they rebelled in the desert. And then after the middle point, their continued rebellion in the desert, and they're going in. You see the beautiful structure of this psalm. Let's look at the first part of it. Each one of these sections begins with a disparaging description of the people of God. And that's how we know that the psalm is divided so neatly together. Quickly look at verse 9. The Ephraimites armed with the bow turned back on the day of battle. Verse 17. Yet they sinned still more against him. Verse 32. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Verse 40. How often they rebelled against him. And verse 56. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God. This is not going to be a pretty picture this morning. But there are powerful lessons for those with ears to hear. Well, the introduction, listen up, verses 1 to 8. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Are you ready to do that today? Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, as we incline our ears to your teaching, we pray that your spirit would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law. That we might see ourself reflected there, your own goodness and glory, and that you would change us as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. We're to listen because verse 2, he says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Now, a parable was a tool of a wisdom teacher. It was a story that required thoughtful consideration and imagination to unlock the meaning. In fact, verse 2 is quoted in Matthew chapter 13 about Jesus' ministry, where it says that he always taught in parables because Jesus wanted to weed out the merely curious from those who were genuinely seeking God. So you don't have to listen to what we're talking about today. We're going to tell you some stories, and if you want to seek God, it's up to you to dig into them and to figure out what's going on and what you can learn. If you want the gold that's here, the psalmist is saying, you have to apply your mind. You have to work to begin to unravel the threads that the psalmist has so skillfully woven together. And I'd like to try to help you do that if I can this morning. But once we've discovered the meaning of these stories, we have another responsibility. Verse 4, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. You see, our fathers told us, verse 3, and now we're supposed to tell our children so that they can tell their children the glorious deeds of the Lord. 
We need to teach them his doings as well as his sayings. I think often we're better at the sayings, at the theology. But this is stories. And I think the reason is, well, one is that stories are more interesting than theology. But also, how do you get to know somebody? Well, if you look at your own life, you can get to know someone through the things that they say for sure. But you can find out more about them often through the things that they actually do. That's how you really find out what someone is like. And so what the psalmist is saying is, I'm going to tell you all the things God has done so that you can get to know him better. And then you can teach your children those same stories and they will get to know God better. In fact, this is a command. It says we shall teach them. He has commanded our fathers, verse 5, to teach their children. Notice it doesn't say that you're supposed to bring your children to Sunday school and let the teachers teach them. Although that's a good idea to do. The primary responsibility for passing on these stories and the understanding of them is on the parents and particularly on the fathers. But we as a church want to help you in that process. And that's why we have a wonderful ministry called Next Generation Ministries. And I was so impressed with the curriculum that we have here that I just wanted to quickly show you how the church is helping you to teach your children the stories of God. In the nursery, how God made us and loves us. In preschool, learning God through the stories of the Bible. Kindergarten, Jesus, what a savior. First grade, the ABCs of God and how great he is. Second grade, that he is faithful to all his promises. Third grade, in the beginning, Jesus. Fourth grade, to be like Jesus and the gospels fully explained at that point. Fifth grade, how majestic is your name, the glory of God. And then in the sixth grade, the Colucci's begin to prepare our kids to move into those turbulent junior high years. This is what the church is doing, and I want to commend all of you that are working in that ministry to pass these stories on to the children of the church. Many of you work hard hours preparing and and just sticking with these little ones and keep it up. And if you'd like to join that ministry, as Don mentioned, you can sign up at the table in the foyer. But why should we know the deeds and the laws of the Lord? Verse 7, I think, gives us the key that unlocks the entire psalm. We should tell the next generation the deeds of the Lord, verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. We are to remember so that we will trust and obey. That's the sermon today. We are to remember the deeds of God So that we will put our hope in him, we will trust him for our problems. And so that we will obey him and walk faithfully according to the ways that he has outlined for us. If we don't remember, we will become like our forefathers, verse 8, a stubborn and rebellious generation. And that's what the rest of the psalm is going to tell us about how that happened. Well, the second section then, the first main section of history, turning back, verses 9 to 16 Verse 9, the Ephraimites armed with the bow turned back on the day of battle. Now, commentators don't agree as to exactly what this is referring to. I think it's speaking of the first time that the people of Israel got through the desert and were at the edge of the promised land. Remember, God had told them, you should go in and capture this land. I'll give it to you. But what did they decide to do at the edge of the promised land? Send some spies in to check it out. Twelve men went in and they came back with a glorious report of what a fantastic land this is. But what was the problem? There are giants in the land. And so even though they were armed with the bow and commanded to go into battle, they shrank back. Why? Because they had forgotten the works of the Lord. 
What had he done just a few months earlier? The text goes on to explain. God had orchestrated the greatest escape in history. The people of Israel were in bondage to Pharaoh. He was hardening his heart and he would not let them go. God gets them released and they move out into the desert and suddenly they're faced with the Red Sea and they're going to be killed. And what does God do for them? He opens up the sea in front of them. He makes the water stand in heaps and they walk through on dry ground. Not only that, but when Pharaoh and his army begin to chase them, God lets those heaps of water fall back down on them and drown them and all of their armies. Now they're in the wilderness, no water to drink. What does God do? He brings rivers of water out of the rocks in the desert. And he has just done this for these people. And yet it says they forgot the things that God has done. And that's why they shrank back. They could not trust him. They could not let the God of then be the God of now. It's not that they couldn't remember those stories. They could have told you what happened. But their faith in God had shriveled up. As they wandered through the desert. And as they faced a new challenge. They shrank back from what God had commanded them to do. The third section. Rebellion in the desert. Now they're in the desert. And what do they do? Verse 17. Yet they sinned still more against him. Rebelling against the most high in the desert. They tested God in their heart. By demanding the food that they craved. Saying can God To test means to try something out and see if it works like you think it ought to work. Now, God is allowed to test us, and he does. Genesis 22.1 is an example. He tested Abraham to see what was in his heart. But us testing God is like the student testing the teacher. You shouldn't do that. Calvin describes it this way. To test him is to subject his power to the narrow rule of our own senses. And to prescribe to him the mode in which to act according to our own desires. So as to defer to him no further than our carnal reason dictates. If you need that quote, it's in the notes. But what he's saying basically is we try to tell God how to run the universe with our very tiny minds. And that's a very dumb thing to do. Now, what had the people done? Well, they had forgotten all that God had done for them. There was an email that went around in the last week or two about the quartermaster general of the army did some calculations for all the food and water that would be needed in the wilderness. And he calculated that for two million people, which is how many were there, Moses would have needed 1,500 tons of manna every day. That's two freight trains full of manna, a mile long each. Then they had to cook that, so they needed some firewood. Calculation was they would need 4,000 tons of firewood each day. A few more freight trains of firewood in the desert, by the way, where trees don't grow. And water, just to drink and wash a few dishes. They would have needed 11 million gallons of water a day. That's a freight train with tank cars 1,800 miles long every day. So what had happened? God had done it. He had provided everything they needed. And yet they weren't satisfied. They got sick of God's menu. Remember that lesson. God had prescribed for them what he wanted them to have and they got tired of it. And they said, all there is in this desert is this manna for us to look at. We want some meat. 
And the text says they gave in to their lust, their cravings for that hamburger after they've been eating vegetarian food all along. Well, what did God do? And we're going to see in all of these passages that the people do something and then God does something. Back and forth. The people complain. They, they demand that God gives them meat. So what does God finally do? They, they tested him and they said, can you do this, God? Well, that's not a really good idea because God can pour out in abundance. He can do anything he wants. And so here he decides to open up the south wind and the east wind. And he blew in so many quail into the camp. And the text says in Exodus that there were quail three feet deep throughout the whole camp, up to their knees. And the quail went out 24 miles radius from outside the camp. They were literally swimming in quail because God was challenged. Can God prepare a table? Absolutely, I can. Here you go. And so the people dug in and they ate to their hearts content. They were stuffing their faces. And the text says, while the food was still in their mouths, God's anger burned against them because they had dared to test his power. And he sent a very great plague and struck down their strongest and fittest. Psalm 106 says he gave them what they demanded, but sent leanness to their souls. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. The middle section, ongoing rebellion and mercy, verses 32 to 39. A little bit of a break from the history. And he just summarizes what is going on and on and on. What do the people do? In spite of all that God has done in saving and disciplining them, they do not obey, verse 32. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So what did God do? Verse 33, he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, God punished his people, even to the point of killing them. And then they finally got the lesson that God's serious and they repented. But their repentance was hollow. In the end, they were just, verse 36, flattering him with their mouths and lying to him with their tongues. All they wanted to do, you see, is get God off their backs Stop hurting us, but as soon as you do that, we're back to the things that we were involved in before. So how does God respond? Verses 38 and 39 are two of the most surprising verses of this psalm and really of the whole Bible to me. Because by this point, I would be ready to get my heavenly zapper out and just eliminate this rabble. And you almost expect to hear that. But look at verse 38. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. God, because of his rich compassion for the people, did not stir up the full extent of his legitimate anger. He tamped it down and he had compassion on them And it says he even atoned for their iniquities. I think that's referring to the fact that when they offered blood sacrifices according to the Levitical system, which they did when they repented, that God looked at that blood and he saw it being applied to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And because of their faith, he forgave them all of their sins. What an amazing God. He remembered that they were but flesh. How unlike us, that is. 
Some of you may remember that we have a dog named Stubby. Well, Stubby continually fills my life with sermon illustrations. We feed Stubby pretty well, we think, but a while ago he got into the habit of getting into our wastebaskets and pulling out the used Kleenexes and munching on them. These were not, you know, new Kleenexes, you get what I'm saying. So I would come home from work and there would be a a, a trail of Kleenexes coming from the wastebasket and I would, what would happen inside of me? I would get angry, so I would take Stubby and drag him over there and say, bad boy, no. All right, lesson learned. Come home. No, some of you have dogs, right? Come home a few days later, another trail of tissues coming from the basket. This time I take Stubby over to the wastebasket. I stick his head inside the wastebasket. Tell him, Stubby, no. He learns his lesson for a few days. Come back. Another trail of tissues. My full anger is beginning to be released. I can't believe that, for one, he's not satisfied with the Purina that we're giving him, and he wants this filth, but also that he doesn't obey me. And so in a rage, I go over to Stubby, and then I hear Marty, my wife's voice, saying, but Nate, wait a minute. And you know what she said? He's just a dog. Oh, I was about ready to punish him like my own child. And then I understood, again, because of my wife's help, that he really can't almost help himself. So I tried to restrain my anger. My wife taught me an important lesson that day. That's what God does with us, my friends. We are not happy with the Purina that he's giving us. We want to dig in the wastebasket for used tissues. And and when we do... His anger is stirred up against us. How could you do that, my people? But in his compassion, he understands that we are but flesh. And he has mercy on us. And he allows us to come to Jesus and in his name ask forgiveness for our sins. And he wipes the slate clean when we come and confess our sins to him. What a marvelous Savior we have. The story doesn't end there, unfortunately. The fifth section, rebellion in the desert. Who would have thought how often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert? They tested him ten times, Numbers 14 says. They grieved him. They hurt him in his heart. They provoked him, verse 41. A word that means to draw a circle around. They limited what they believed God could do. And it made him angry. They did not remember his power or all the things he had done for them. And so the psalmist now gives us another review of things that God has done for his people. And he describes six of the plagues that he visited on the people of Egypt so they would let his people go. The rivers and all the water turning to blood. The flies that came into their houses and their kitchens. The frogs that came in so much they went into their bedrooms and onto their beds. The locusts that came and destroyed all of their crops. The hail that killed the cattle and finished off the rest of the crops. And finally, the destroying angel that God sent to kill the firstborn of every Egyptian. God had done all of these things for his people, and yet they forgot. Now that they're in the wilderness, they needed help. And so God, in verse 52, he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. 
God cared for his people after delivering them. He took them right to the edge of the promised land again. And what happened now? Verse 54. And he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Do you see all that God did for his people that they forgot? He delivered them. He provided for them. He gave them the lands of other nations because of their sin, by the way, and even gave them their houses to live in. He did all of this for them. But they continued to rebel against him. Sixth section going in to the land, verses 56 to 64, true to their nature, even in the land, they test and rebel against God. Verse 56, yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. They tried to deceive him with their mouths. They came to church and showed up, but they were like a faulty bow that can never hit its mark. Instead of worshiping God alone, they began to worship idols, breaking the first and the second commandments. And while discontent was a major struggle for them in the desert, disloyalty is the major struggle for them in the land. And how did God respond this time? Well, he got jealous, for they provoked him to anger with their high places, verse 58. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. And every Israelite reading this knew exactly what story he was talking about. It's in 1 Samuel 4 where the Israelites went up to fight the Philistines and they engaged in battle and they lost. 4,000 men were killed. So they regrouped and they said, why have we lost this battle? Oh, it's because God is no longer with us because we didn't take the ark, the box into battle that has God inside of it. So they pick up the box and they go back into battle confident that they're going to beat the Philistines. But God is no longer in the box. He has left them because of their sin. And they fight the Philistines, and this time 30,000 Israelites are killed, including the sons of Eli, Phinehas, and Hophni. And as Eli's daughter-in-law hears the word of the death of her husband and gives birth to her son, she names him Ichabod, meaning the glory has departed from Israel. God, for a season, is finished with his people. But fortunately, the psalm doesn't end there because he's never truly finished with us. And so the concluding section is God's good plan, verses 65 to 72. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine, and he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. God, who has been silent, now awakes, apparently as if from sleep. And he awakes as energized as a man that has been drinking. That's what the passage says. God is ready now to kick some tail. And that's also what the passage says. Because in the King James, it says he struck the enemies on their hinder parts. (laughs) He hit him in the back end as they were running away. God is alive and he moves to deliver his people from their enemies. God is on the move. And then he does something amazing for his people. He comes back to live among them. Not in Shiloh this time, but in Zion, in the magnificent temple that Solomon built for him. And he chose a good leader for them, David, who had learned in the fields to shepherd the weak and the wayward. And now with an upright heart and a skillful hand, begins to shepherd the people of God. 
a picture and a forebear of that great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus, our good shepherd who laid down his life for us. Well, those are the stories, the true life parables. What are we to learn from them? I'm sure as you've been inclining your ear this morning, I trust that something is beginning to filter through. Is is some water coming through the coffee grounds and dripping into the cup of your soul today? He paints in this psalm two portraits, one of us and the other of God. And let me just quickly review these for you. What's the picture of us as God's people? It's, It's ugly. We forget him. We rebel against him. We refuse to believe him. We're an unbelieving people. We test God. Numbers 14, 11, God says, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? We flatter God and lie to him, even in our supposed repentance. We grieve God and hurt his soul. We provoke him to anger and we are unfaithful to the promises that we've made to him. No wonder the scripture says of us, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. There is none righteous, no, not one. Do you see yourself in the mirror yet? We're just like them. We are sick. We need a savior. And that's the beauty of the other portrait, the portrait of God and his actions and his character. God is a righteous God. Yes, he does get angry. He will not tolerate our sin. He will punish us. He will discipline us so that we stay on the straight path. God is hurt when we sin against him. His jealousy is aroused. And for a time, he might even forsake his people so that they will learn the lessons that he wants them to learn. But even stronger is the portrait of a compassionate God. Do you see all the things that God did for his people again and again and again? He divided the Red Sea. He led his people like a flock. He gave them water in abundance. He gave them manna in abundance. He even gave them meat when they demanded it. He atoned for their iniquity. He restrained his anger. He remembered their weakness. He redeemed them from the foe. He provided land and houses for them. He came to their aid when their enemies were beating them and he chose a good shepherd to care for them. No wonder the scripture says this of our great God. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. So. Why are we in the wilderness in the first place? You ready to incline your mind now to these parables? If life is so hard in the desert that we are challenged to trust him and tempted to disobey him, why doesn't God just pick us up on eagle's wings from the moment we cross over the Red Sea and deliver us directly into the promised land? Did you notice that there's no expressway between Egypt and Canaan? It's like trying to get to Evansville from Indianapolis. (laughs) If you're going to go to Chicago, you just get on 65 and boom, you're there. 
If you're going to go to Evansville, you've got to take some back roads and wind your way around and you'll eventually get there. That's what the desert is. God sends us to Evansville, all of us. And <laughs> Nothing against Evansville. But the question is why? Why doesn't he just make a, an expressway so we can shoot straight through? Well, as we think about this psalm, I think the answer is simply this, that God wants us to learn to trust and to obey. If there are no difficulties in life, we never need to learn to trust him. You see, God loves to show off his strength. He loves to flex his muscles and show that I can deliver you from no matter how big a problem you have. And all he's waiting for us to do is to remember all that he's done in the past and to to ask that he would do that in the present. And then he in his time and his way will deliver us. And if there's no temptation, then obeying is robotic. And it doesn't mean much, frankly. But you see, God loves it when we choose to obey him rather than follow other attractions that might be out there. God is testing us to see what our faith is made of. Do we believe him enough to trust him with our lives and our problems? And do we love him enough to do everything that he has said? 1 Corinthians 10, these things happen to them as an example. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. And I think today there are probably two groups of people here today. And I want to leave you as we wrap up with with two groups of people and a word for each one of you. There are the weak who are having trouble trusting God in trials. And there are the wandering, those who are straying away from the paths of God. And the word for the weak is test. The word for the wandering is grief. Let's look at the first group. And some of us may be in both of these today. I'm sure there's somebody in this room who was called in in the last week or two by your boss and said, you know what, sorry to do this to you, but we just can't keep the company going with this many people. Or the doctor's office and you were told it doesn't look good. Maybe your marriage seems beyond repair. Maybe your children are not walking with God. Maybe your business is in the tank and the red keeps piling higher and higher and you don't know what to do. You're struggling, you see, to trust God with the cards that you've been dealt. Why is it so hard? Because, my friends, we're on the pilgrim road and we're not home yet. The wanderers, some of you are living in sin right now. Some of you are actively rebellious against God. Some of you are falling into sin and getting up and falling into sin again and getting up again and you just can never get free from that besetting sin that seems to have you tackled by your ankles. Others of you are in a low-grade rebellion against God. Oh, you come to church, you do the right things, but your heart is not right. You're not soft and tender toward Him. You're not desiring to obey Him and please Him in all of your life. You're a wanderer today and what do we do about it? We need to remember the works of the Lord. Well, how does that help us? If you're struggling with trust today, if you're among the weak, then remember this word, you're testing God. You may be asking, can God do whatever it is that you want him to do? Of course he can. But you see, unbelief of every kind is a testing of God. And not to believe on the evidence that he has given is to demand that he give more than he's already chosen to give you. 
It's like the people in John 6. After he fed 5,000 people, the next thing they say is, give us a sign that we might believe in you. Incredible. And yet that's what we do as well. We test God when we are dissatisfied with his dealings with us and demand that he deal in a different way than he has chosen to do. You see, we cannot distrust God without accusing him of a lack of either power or goodness, without telling him that his plans are not the best or wisest. And the fear and the anxiety and the despondency that these things drive us into is nothing less than a call upon God that he needs to run his universe better than he's doing. I love the way Matthew Henry says it. He says, we both impeach his wisdom and betray our pride when we prescribe to God how he ought to act. Well, you might ask, what about prayer? Can we not ask God for things he's not given us? Certainly. Saying, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. But there's a difference between humbly asking with thanksgiving and grumblingly demanding what we think we deserve. And God knows that difference. So yes, cry out to him, say, God, change my situation. But until you do, I'm going to be content here because you're running not only the universe, you're running my life and I trust in you. How do we build our faith? We remember the deeds that God has done. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? If you're weak, let me ask you this morning, do you really want to keep testing God? Look at all he's done. Cry out to him to deliver you and then trust him to make it right. And he will. If you're wandering today and struggling with obedience, what is the answer? Did you see some clues in this parable? I I noticed two things that I think will help. One is the discipline of God. Time and again, we saw how God punished his people. He hurt them and it helped to keep them in line, at least for a period of time. And if we, as the children of God, are going to keep deliberately sinning against him, Hebrews 12 says that in his love, he may choose to discipline us for a time. And it says that that discipline will not be fun. It's going to be painful. But in the end, what does it yield? A harvest of righteousness and peace. Do you really want to feel the rod of God's discipline and chastisement on your life? But the other thing that helps me in this text is the goodness of God. Do you notice how he did not give full vent to his anger? He continued to provide for these people who were so fickle. Do you know why he does that? Because he loves us with an everlasting love. If we are in a covenant relationship with him, if you have by faith put your trust in Jesus for your salvation, you are now the bride of Christ, is what the scripture says. And if a bride begins to chase other lovers, how does the groom feel about that? You see, God is not just a celestial force in the universe. He's not just a cop in the sky that loves to zap people with tickets when they get out of line. God is a person, and when we enter a relationship with him and commit ourselves to him, he commits himself to us. And in that relationship, he's expecting that we're going to seek him and him alone. 
And when we turn our face and turn our back to him and slap him in the face and begin to pursue other idols, when we are adulterous in our spiritual lives, it grieves God's heart. And so my question for you as a child of God is, do you really want to keep on grieving him? The way to trust and obey is to remember. We learn the ways of God by remembering the works of God. And we need to let them soak into our minds and our hearts so that they renew our thinking, so that they take us up to the heavenlies and give us God's perspective on all that is happening to us, that that gives us a fresh confidence in God's ability to deliver and a new desire to obey Him and please Him as our Savior and our God. If our record is our shame, the record of God's persistent goodness is our only hope. He who has ears, let him hear. We have a great country. Let us be inspired this weekend to be great Americans. But we have a greater citizenship than that, a citizenship that is in heaven. Let us be inspired by the works of God to be great Christians those who trust him in every circumstance and obey him in all the walks of life because he is our good God and our great Savior. Shall we pray? Let me just give you a moment to reflect on your own life. Hold up the mirror of these stories to your life. If you're weak and having a hard time trusting God, just confess that. Reflect on all the things God has done for his people in ages past and even in your own life. Say, God, I trust you with whatever I'm facing right now. I give it back to you. You're big enough. You can. If you're a wanderer, oh, I don't know what it will take to bring your heart back to the great shepherd of the sheep. But I would encourage you, don't taste the discipline of God it will hurt are you not tired of grieving him your savior, your God oh God you've done so much for us we love these stories you've done much for each of us in the 21st century as well you are a living, active God and we worship you Help us by the Holy Spirit that you've given to live in us, to trust you by faith and to walk in obedience to all of your commands. To the glory of your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.